Hello and welcome to This Just Is. My name is Ian. Glad to have you back if you've listened before, and if not, we are glad that you are here. We've been gone for a while, but rest assured, we have a few episodes coming out in succession, and we'll get back on track quickly. Life is busy, times are tough, but we will keep moving on. We have no choice. This episode is very special to me, as they all are, but I think we are exploring something incredibly important and universal. Over the past several years, I've noticed, as I'm sure you have, a massive divide or rift in our social discourse. Whether it's on various social media platforms or the mainstream media, it is obvious that we as a nation, and even globally, are very divided. A fundamental chasm has formed in our culture. Disagreement has bred more hatred. This hatred has led to violence and, in some unfortunate cases, loss of human life. Our sociopolitical beliefs and our ideologies are literally killing us, causing many of us great pain and additional trauma. It's just rough to witness, and whether we like it or not, we are all part of this thing. We're all part of the problem. We are more tribal, more separated, and more angry than I've ever seen in my nearly 40 years on the planet, and it's deeply unsettling because there is seemingly no end in sight. As someone who has strong sociopolitical beliefs and has had many a heated discussion with people I vehemently disagreed with in the past, including close friends and family members, I get the allure. The idea of being right, having some moral superiority over another person, it feels good. It feeds some egoistic need. There's a rush that it gives you. It feels almost primal. I understand it to an extent. Much of who we think we are is tied up in how we make sense of the world. When someone or something threatens the natural order of how we feel our reality is supposed to be composed, it's uncomfortable. You mix this in with base levels of existential fear, generational and personal trauma, familial indoctrination, systematic oppression, and a capitalist system run amok, and it's created a witch's brew of problems that we seemingly can't even begin to resolve. Having heated conversations or arguments, I've realized, is just not good for me. It doesn't lead to any beneficial outcomes. I'm certainly not reaching any hearts or minds. I usually just feel bad about it. What do you actually gain in being right? And who's to say you are right? How can an opinion be right when it's not based on any sort of empirical facts or data or is provably false? How can you trust objective reality when it's seemingly being attacked on all sides? Are we even willing to change our philosophies or ideologies if we are shown we are wrong in some way? If there was evidence showing you that your entire approach to how you view the world was wrong, would you be willing to accept that and adjust your worldview accordingly? I don't know the answer to this. I feel as though I personally would. My worldview seemingly is ever-evolving, but I don't know. I don't know how to adjust to this. We've entered into a place where the truth has become what you want to believe and not necessarily what is verifiable. In a world where verification is impaired, which seems to be the case now more than ever, how do we navigate that? Even when the truth shows up for some people, they remain steadfast in their ideologies. We've all witnessed this in our own lives to some degree. People seem hell-bent on making their realities mold to their worldview and the amount of data streams and information that is being fed to us both knowingly and unknowingly strengthen our confirmation bias, leaving us more in our own corners, screaming into our own echo chambers, reaffirming ideologies that we feel might be serving us when in fact they aren't. If you'll allow me an attempt to alter perspective a bit, I personally don't believe that the presidential election was stolen. I think that Joe Biden won as fair and square as any election we've had. However, if there was actual real evidence supporting that it was indeed stolen, how willing would I be to say, well, they were right, the election was stolen? It would change every aspect of how I've constructed my current reality and my life. It would be very difficult. 
I would feel dupe, I assume slightly embarrassed for having the wool pulled over my eyes, and would also feel uncomfortable that perhaps my hold on what I feel to be true and verifiable isn't as strong as I once thought. For the sake of argument, if one believes that the presidential election was stolen, and tomorrow Donald Trump publicly stated, hey, I just found out that the election actually wasn't stolen, I was wrong, would you believe it? Would you want to believe it? I feel that thinking about opposing viewpoints in these terms is a helpful exercise, although a difficult one for sure. In my own personal life, I have close family members and friends that are on the quote-unquote other side. And it's been very hard to figure out constructive ways to have conversations. In the past, I found myself trying to figure out ways to pull this other individual over to my side with logical, well-laid-out arguments or statistical analysis and data to show them the error of their ways with the counterparty attempting to do the same thing to me. This left both of us exhausted, angry, and in some cases altered the nature of a once strong relationship. The easy thing to do is to say things like, we just won't talk politics, or religion or lifestyle choices are off the table for debate. So you engage in a relationship where there are these landmines in your interactions, and we can sense in the flow of normal conversations when things are about to get personal or political, and we adjust course accordingly. But I ask you, the listener, what sort of relationship is this? I personally don't want to be in a friendship or be interacting with people in that way. You want to be able to open up to the people closest to you without judgment or disdain. At least these are the types of relationships that I seek out. So what do we do with all of this? And where can we even start to deconstruct our own approaches to our personal opinions, relationships, and day-to-day interactions with those around us? We spoke with Mercedes Kaufman, a certified marriage and family therapist, about all of this. Mercedes is about as sharp and accomplished as they come. She has some incredible insights and strategies of ways to engage with people whom you may not agree with. We also talk deeply about identity and trauma and how these things tend to govern so much of our lives and how we respond to the world around us. We get into inner child work and how therapy can help us as people self-examine and improve our approach to life. I can't stress enough how important this is. Our own personal pain and construction of who we think we are or who we need to be is at the root of so much of this. Our own mental health is so very important. She helps break down how sublimating our common urges to insert our worldview and personal beliefs in general conversation can lead to greater insights and understanding and help us to reach a compassionate, empathetic, and non-judgmental state. It's powerful stuff. It was an incredible conversation, and I think one that people need to hear and one that I hope is helpful for you. So here she is, a very bright beacon of hope, a compass of understanding, and a wealth of knowledge, the great Mercedes Kaufman. All right, excellent. Mercedes, you're going to be seeing a lot of me this week and into early next week, but I'm glad we're doing, I'm glad we're doing this, like this very in-depth conversation first, but, um, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're, you're a busy person. You have your own, uh, practice, you have your own patience. Um, you you know, you, you do all sorts of great social media posts that I watch that I think are fantastic. And I think that we'll just kind of kick this conversation off. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of why I thought it would be so great to chat with you and something that I've noticed and something that I've been puzzled by is many of us over the past several years, have had enormous rifts with people that are very important to us in our lives, whether that be family, close friends, you know, uh, even people that we just run into casually that, that we know there's 
seemingly massive gaps between people's social and political ideologies. And you can see through everything in the media, everything on social media, uh, and the way that people are towards each other, that there seems to be this incredible rift that's grown. And I, in some cases in my life, don't even really know how to connect or talk to some people because the, the divide is so vast. Like our, our belief systems are so run so antithetical to each other mm-hmm. that it's, it's almost hard to find a common ground to even try to discuss things in a meaningful and rational and calm way. It just seems like people's emotions are on high for, and I think in some instances it's for good reason. Like mm-hmm. we've just been through a sort of a mass trauma event and uh, you could argue that, you know, uh, the past and, and still right now in the past four years, we're sort of a mass trauma event with everything that's gone on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even prior, we're always experiencing this trauma. So I guess what I wanted to, is a long way of me asking question of, what are some like basic fundamental ways that people that are in positions of not really being able to connect with people in our lives because of their political, social ideologies? How do you start from ground zero and just basically connect with people? Uh, I First off, thank you for having me on your show. I think that this uh, topic I'm very passionate about because not only do I see this a lot in my private practice, but I also see it with friends, family. Um, I've seen it with just different cultures and not just in America, but all across the world. We seem to be more divided. And I think that a lot of times people forget how to connect when it's difficult. It's easier to avoid topics that are divisive. It's easier just to take the easy route and avoid it. You know, you go over to your mom's house and she may have different political views. So you just avoid that topic altogether. And I think the problem with that is that we rob ourselves from an opportunity from really getting to know people and for us to grow past our own limitations of knowledge. Um, And I think that we need to learn how to sit with people who have different views and to connect with them. So one of the tools that I think is always important is reflections. For us always to think, why are we having these conversations? What's the reason for us engaging in these conversations? Is it because we're truly curious or is it because we're trying to convert someone or is it because we're trying to criticize or judge their perspective? If you could reflect first and say, okay, if I'm going to go in here, am I having this conversation with my friend because I want to convert him or her? Or am I truly curious about where they stand and why they have that perspective? I think another tool is to remember that the ideologies that people hold are formed and birthed out of two things, their fears and their circumstances and environment. And it's a defense mechanism People don't hold on to ideologies that don't serve them. And human beings, as well as animals, because we are animals, we are self-serving. So the ideologies we hold, the mental constructs we have, are there to protect us in some shape or form. And so the sooner that we understand that, we then could connect with other people because that's similar to all human beings. We hold on to certain things to protect ourselves from the things we fear or the anticipated dangers in our society. And I think that's the same across any divisive group or topic, which is why I personally enjoy talking to people who have different beliefs than I do. So you talked a little bit about people 
utilizing these ideologies because it serves them in some way. But it's sometimes obvious from the outside looking in that that ideology is not necessarily serving them in a positive way. Um, So it serves them in the sense that it, it forms that protection mechanism that allows them and enables them to either find community or find some sort of importance or uh, their path or whatever it is, it, it gives them a sense of protection. Like you mentioned, it helps them create a shell so that they're no longer harmed for whatever reason. Is it a little bit of a lost cause to try to explain to these people when you see it like, Hey, maybe it's not the best thing. And here's some objective reasons as to what we've noticed or a couple people have noticed because when we, when I've done this type of behavior And again, I I think that it's not necessarily anyone's job to try to quote unquote fix other people. But if there's someone you care about and you notice that they're going down a path that could be destructive and and necessarily harm their their well-being, their career, their relationships, you want to step in and say like, hey, you know, I know you really are gung-ho about this particular thing, but just know that it could be really destructive for you if you continue doing that. And that was no matter how gentle we tried to make that approach, it was not received well. And I don't know if it was just that one particular instance, but I, I guess what I'm trying to drill down at more is these, we utilize this, these mechanisms to serve us. Um, and the serving us part of it is to kind of make our lives easier so that things are simpler. And so it's this incredibly convoluted mechanism that's been built. That's you, something you think is serving you isn't serving you but you continue to do it because you believe it is or your mind has convinced you that it is. It's like almost like an addiction of some capacity, like, you know, utilizing drugs and alcohol to soothe or assuage your discomfort is not dissimilar to finding some ideology that you cling on to and, and it gives you hope or it gives you some sense of, of being or oneness or wholeness. And so how, how do you even breach the subject with people that you love and care about when you notice them going down those sort of paths, because we, we touched on it a little bit, but like, do you just kind of throw a Hail Mary and say, Hey, I'm noticing this. I hope you, you know, these things get better for you or you just sort of leave it alone and hope no, they come to that realization. I, I think you brought a, a very good, uh, and that's exactly where I was going as you were talking about, you know, sometimes it's obvious to the outside world that a person is engaging in destructive coping mechanisms and our instincts, especially if it's someone we love or care about, is to protect them and, and to enlighten them on better ways of dealing with their problems or issues or traumas. I think the best way is to join a person in their reality first and then to try to bring them to where you think is better for them. For example, addiction. I've worked for over five years in a treatment center with addicts and from the outside world, um, it's very easy to tell a heroin or, or cocaine addict, hey, you're, you're killing yourself. It's not good for your body. It's not good for your brain. But it isn't until we ask not why the drugs, but why the pain that we really start recognizing, oh, I understand why this person is doing it. I understand that they were molested by their father or, you know, that they lost their mother when they were two years old or whatever trauma they've experienced. And this is the only way that they could numb those painful experiences. They do not know another way of coping. Then you start empathizing and connecting and saying, 
if I had experienced something that was for me at the capacity of I cannot deal with this, I would probably need to escape it in some shape or form, whether it was destructive or not. I think that if a person could tell when someone's just trying to tell them, hey, come to my side, you know, it's better over here versus let me come join you in your side. Tell me why you're here, why you're choosing that. And then let's walk over to my side. If you don't like my side, then you could always go back to your side. But I think a lot of us just because it seems better on our side, we think that we just have to enlighten the person and we want to just teach them of a better way instead of learning from them why they resorted to those coping mechanisms to begin with. Every addict knows that drugs are bad. Every single addict knows that. They just don't see another way. And we need to first understand why they, they have so much pain to begin with. So that's kind of my, my answer to, is it possible? Absolutely. There's plenty of people that I've worked with where other people have given up in trying to convince them of a better way. And I think me joining them and really engaging in their lives and trying to understand them has helped them come to my side of, okay, let's try this new mechanism. And if that doesn't work, you could always go back to the one you were working on or engaging in before. So with that in mind, it's one thing to have a difference of political opinion, right? I mean, I think that that, that we've seen, we've seen kind of the basics of that. And obviously that that's been uh, very charged in our country uh, for a long time, but as of late, even more charged than it normally is. So it's one thing to be a Republican or a Democrat. It's one thing to be an independent or a libertarian and have different sort of beliefs about how, how best government works, etc. But when it comes to people that are denying like objective reality, do you think that that more teeters into mental illness or is that more sort of still that protect, that sort of protective mechanism or is it a mixture of both? You know, when you, when you see groups of people, you know, thousands of people meeting at a convention center to, to talk about how the earth is flat, it's, 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 for me, it's like slightly unsettling. Mm-hmm. I understand it. I, I initially, I found it really kind of irritating, but now I'm just sort of feel that these are people who are just looking for connection <laughs> and, and, you know, at every turn they can be disproved, but they don't want to be disproved. So it's not, you know, they're not taking a scientific approach of, you know, prove me wrong, show me why this is wrong. They're kind of saying, I believe this thing to be true. I'm going to find other people that also believe it to be true, whether it's objective or not. And so I, I guess I just kind of wanted your, your take on that as far as like, where does that lie on the spectrum of trauma, anxiety, depression, or like somewhat a form of mental illness? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And for some, like we're very in tune today, Ian, because that's exactly the example I was going to give you about the earth being flat. And so one of my favorite philosophers, um, Alan Watts, love that man, brilliant. He talks about how to deal with people who object the idea of, you know, uh, objective truths and to not argue with them and to not go to a convention like that and say, no, look, scientifically, it's proven that it's not flat. But with people like this to go, okay, I'm going to pack my bags. I'm going to put my sneakers on. Why don't you guys take me to the end of the earth? Let's go. You know, like, lead me, show me, show me that it's flat. Show me why you believe that. Prove me wrong. 
Because I think that you've mentioned the idea of belonging and significance in group out group. That is, I think, at the core of all of the divisiveness that this entire topic is about. People want to belong. It's a basic human need. We want to feel a part of something. On top of that, there is the confirmatory bias. People only research the things they want to believe. There is an answer and a mindset and a perspective on anything that you might want to think about. If you want to think that aliens are purple or that the earth is flat, there are research findings you will find that will prove you to you that it's true. So most of us use the confirmatory bias. We believe something, we have an ideology about something, and we only research things that confirm it. And we dispute things that discount it. Instead of research both sides, research both sides. That way you could be completely educated on both sides. And then you could say, I still believe this about the earth. So as ridiculous as something may seem, don't judge it as ridiculous. Go, okay, maybe they're right. Uh, Maybe I'm misinformed. Maybe this is my own confirmation bias coming into play. And I need to go and, and observe what their beliefs are and kind of like live amongst them, if you will. To kind of get an idea and then you can make a determination like i think a great example of this is you know and, and i'm not paying much attention to it because i sort of try not to listen to too much of the news but the whole wuhan lab thing mm-hmm. right i mean people that were saying that this leaked from a lab eight nine months ago they were being like ostracized for it and now it's become a mainstream news story that potentially this is a, a real possibility that it did and, and it's looking like maybe it was likely that it did. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just judging based on news. Who knows what's true and what's not. But I think this idea of people saying one thing and you immediately going, you're a quack or that's insane. If people would have gone, okay, well, why don't we try to figure that that out instead of nine months later having all of those people who were ostracized now being super upset. Like I told you, I told you 10 months ago that this was a thing. And it also makes... I think it makes like the scientific process look bad too, Mm -hmm. Um, that so many people were dismissive of that. And all these, many people said, oh no, it's from, you know, some wet market and, you know, outside of the city and it came from a pangolin and and now there's a whole other thing (laughs) that's popped up. So I think that that's really, that that was a lesson to me of like, and and I, I never thought that it came from a lab or didn't come from a lab. I, my whole thing, my, my approach was like, I don't care where it came from. It's still bad. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and I think that, that I kind of wanted to ask maybe a personal question more about like my own view on things. And maybe you can enlighten me and tell me like how I can think more like the people that, that do this sort of stuff or, or do a lot of it. And I want to talk mostly about social media because obviously these stories explode on social media. Mm -hmm. 10 months ago, it exploded on social media. It's exploding on social media now. And I'm not partaking in a lot of it, but for me personally, and I know there are a lot of people that feel this way that I, I try to interact with. I like to be around these type of people. There's like a, and excuse my language, like who fucking cares type of attitude towards a lot of the things that people get bent out of shape of. Mm -hmm. I know that there are real things that people should be bent out of shape about and should be taken to the streets and being upset about. And I, I support that, but there's a lot of things where they're screaming into the echo chamber, screaming into the void. And, and it's the same people every day on Twitter or on Instagram or wherever attacking each other. Mm-hmm. And is, and, and I just, I wonder why there isn't more of a movement of people to be like, why are we doing this? Why are we continuously 
screaming at each other over these devices impersonally about things that we really don't even know about. I don't know about the Wuhan lab leak. I don't know about, you know, epidemiology. I don't know about it. And so my personal opinion is like, who cares? Just do your, do your best. But I think that information has become weaponized and radicalized in such a way that people feel like if they have this information that they somehow have something that other people don't. So I don't know. It's a kind of a long winded way of me asking, like, how do you, why do people care about this stuff so much? I guess. Because I think that uncertainty is very scary to people. And I think that change is very scary. I think that to a certain degree, we all want to hold on to the illusion of control. And the more we quote unquote know, the less scary the world is when the truth is we don't know anything. And you and I have talked about the whole awakening thing is that we don't know anything. There's only a few people that control the media and whatever they want to spin is what people will be fed, right? So I don't know anything. I don't know about anything. If anybody asks me about most of this, the topics, I'm like, guys, I don't know. I don't know. You I know about therapy. You I know about therapy. therapy. That I know yeah. about. But yeah. if you ask me about things that the media spins or, or reports, I don't know. And even with therapy, if a client comes to me, like if you were to come to me and tell me how terrible your partner is, I will still know that that's just one part of the truth. I would love to meet your partner and ask her how she feels. You know, so there's, there's always this reality of, my, my partner, just so that for my partner is wonderful. I just want to get, say that. So. I, I knew, I yeah. knew it must have been a wonderful partner, Ian. So, but <laughs> I was just, <laughs> what I, I think that. The, I know there's two sides to every story and it's a simple lesson and we forget it. Absolutely. I and I yeah. think the idea of, you know, not just being open-minded and knowing the, wait, hey, nobody knows the answer, but I think yeah. that it is an urge that people have. Because people need to feel as though they belong to a group, like we've talked about earlier, the idea of identity. And when someone's identity is threatened, when the news illuminates a particular story, it threatens people's identity. And when a person feels threatened, just like when an animal feels threatened or injured, they attack, which is why people have become more aggressive. They feel in some shape or form threatened. So it... Just to put a put a finer point on that, it's almost as if we don't recognize mental injury as a threat or if it's all about physical injury. Yes. But it's mental injury causes people to last latch out or a lash out or create behaviors within their own lives that are that can really harm them and the people around them. Um, And I think that that's an important thing that that isn't prioritized in, in our, in our society is that, you know, mental injury, trauma, we'll, I will talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. PTSD, anxiety, these sorts of things lead to really, really destructive behaviors in people. It's like walking around with a, with a broken leg that you just are never getting fixed. Yes, absolutely. And even if it's not trauma, cause not everybody has, you know, the type of trauma that you would think comes to therapy. But even if it's not that, even the, just the idea of someone's identity being threatened, that could really close a person off and it could really sever relationships no matter how close. If you're questioning someone's identity or things that they consider part of their identity or personality, 
a lot of people will take that very personal and it could suffer the relationship long term or never ever be mended again. So I think that we have to always ask ourselves some of these divisive topics, maybe the people who have a hard time talking about it have ingrained them as part of their identity. And nobody likes their identity questioned unless they've, you know, done some self-exploration and they know, hey, we're ever evolving. But a lot of people don't do that kind of work, you know, so we can't expect them to adapt as easily as maybe you and I would. So getting getting back to that, and you know, not everyone has access to a wonderful therapist or a psychologist or a mental health spe- specialist, unfortunately. Uh, the way things are set up, it's access can be a little difficult for, for the average person. And a lot of even, you know, people that have health insurance have a hard time finding therapists that will take the insurance through no fault of their own, just because insurance is, is kind of a nightmare. We don't need to talk about all that, but um, we don't need to talk about our dear insurance industry. <laughs> but, but if you're an individual who is tinkering around with this idea that you just discussed of questioning your own identity or the the person that you've created mm-hmm. outwardly and you want to try to start to do some of this work on your own what are some resources and, and things that we can do to like personally explore our own shortcomings our flaws trauma like where where can people start as individuals is it as simple as meditation is it as simple as just sitting quietly reading a, a book on spirituality or philosophy like is it starting in that area or is it more of you can kind of do this own there there's methodologies to do this you know by yourself or there's resources available online or you can watch lectures or mm-hmm. what are some things people can do that might not have access to a wonderful therapist or mental health specialist i think there's several resources i think you know there's not necessarily a lack of resources, but I think it's about knowing where to look and knowing what to do, as well as I think there's still a stigma, which we're definitely getting much better with, but there's still a stigma that you only go to therapy if it's really bad. Um, And that's not the case. You go to therapy, just like you go to the gym, you go to organize your mental, emotional, and spiritual health, right? And so I think that a lot of the times people wait until it's either too late or they're in crisis. So I think that the first thing is to be willing, to be willing to explore inward. And I'm glad you brought that up because I really think at the core, this all comes from the way we raise children, the way we are with our friends, the way we are in our education and in our workforce is that we don't really teach people to look inward. We teach people to just attack and address problems that are outward problems. Our eyes are turned outward. So we only focus on the problems outside of us, relationship problems with others, how others are annoying us, how this person is doing that. And we don't really go, okay, well, what's my contribution? What can I do? Right? So I think that people could definitely, you know, the good old self-help books have definitely helped people. There are therapists who do pro bonos, like there are therapists who work for free with clients. I usually take on one client that I do, I work with for free. And then there's a great website, www.psychologytoday.com, where you could find your therapist within your zip code. And you could just scroll down through and find whatever therapist you're attracted to, um, whatever therapist you feel is the right fit for you. You could have a consultation and then 
you know, take it from there. But I do, I do urge everybody to consider it at least once, you know, you could have one session and say, Hey, I'm not married to this idea. I don't want to do it anymore. And you never have to go back. Therapists understand that it's a scary process for clients. So we don't expect you to feel tied down and we're not pushy. Most of us are not pushy. So we'll always leave the door open for you to go and come as you please. And for you just to explore and give yourself that one hour to just organize your mental and emotional health. Because most of the time when we call our friends, how often does a friend listen to you for an entire hour without interrupting you or making the story about themselves, right? So it's very hard to have a conversation with a person who is there just to listen to you. That's why I think it's incredibly important. Um, of course, meditation's good. YouTube has so many resources for whatever issue or trauma you're going through. Excellent. Um, that's great. In getting, in, in, I guess, similar to the question I just asked, and, and maybe you covered some of this, but maybe perhaps there's some other things that you'd want to discuss, but what are, what are the common thematic issues that you see in your patients? And is there something the average person would be surprised that you see reoccur in your everyday work that seems to be a constant regardless of race, age, socioeconomic status, gender, sexuality? Is there, are, are there things that just continuously emerge regardless of the client that are, you know, everyone's um, situation is distinct to them. But no, my notion is that maybe it's like every person is kind of, there's a similar thing going on with everyone. Absolutely. I think that if I have to pick one thing that I've seen as a common thread, it is lack of accountability and not intentionally. I think a lot of my clients and over the years, I've noticed that a lot of people are willing to look at their part, but it isn't something that naturally occurs. You know, it's easier to say my husband did this, you know, and my husband does this and it makes me mad instead of what am I doing and understanding that relationship issues are dynamic issues. It, it does not occur in just one person. Something triggers the other person. And so to understand dynamic issues and to understand that the relationship issues that people, whether in individual therapy, family therapy, or relationship therapy come to me, um, oftentimes they focus on the outward issues like I just talked about versus looking inward and going, okay, what's my contribution to the problem? Where, what's my part? And that's a, and that's a very vulnerable process for a lot of people to do, to, to look at where they're wrong, because a lot of people are very scared of doing that. You know, it's a very courageous process. So lack of accountability is almost always um, a common issues. And then eventually I start seeing that they start owning their part and they start looking at their contribution. And when they do that change really starts happening. What are the sorts of changes that people see in their lives when they begin on their path of self-discovery and healing? What are some signposts that you recognize in your clients and people you work with in their behavior and their outlook that are healthy indicators of, of change? Uh, what are some things that individuals who are working on themselves can, can look for and go, oh, oh, I'm, I'm improving? Because it's very hard. I think most people are very hard on themselves. I know that I am mm -hmm. and I'm working on trying to not be. And so sometimes when I do something 
that is a, a different behavior than I've done in the past. There's no, I don't reward myself. I notice it, but I'm just like, oh, okay, yeah, oh, you're not doing that thing anymore. And then you move on. And I think that, um, yeah, I just, I'm interested to know if you, if you, there are certain things that you click in your head and you go, oh, we're having a little bit of a breakthrough here with this individual. So some of the signs are usually the person, because therapy is so sacred as far as the space that is given to the clients, they will usually catch that moment because it's only about them. So they'll usually go, oh, I just caught myself, you know, or I'll, I'll point it out because like you said with you, people who are hard on themselves have a hard time complimenting themselves and noticing their victories and their, their focus is only on their shortcomings or lack or areas of improvement. And so with those types of people, I always point out where there's improvements and I have them say it out loud. I have them go. So I would go with you and I'd say, Ian, would you, if, when your child does something good, do you just internally go, Oh, he or she did a good job. Or do you, I tell her she did, I tell her she does a good job, even if she doesn't do a good job. Exactly. <laughs> just cause I want her to feel good. Yeah, exactly. So then I have people go, well, how come you don't deserve that praise? Right? Because when we don't, praise a good behavior, it stops happening. That's just human nature. That's just any, that's just a scientific law, right? So if you don't reward her behavior, she'll stop doing it. Whether I do good or bad, dad always says I'm doing good. Why am I going to do good? It takes more effort. But when we say, oh my God, Mercedes, I just noticed I broke an old pattern. I'm proud of you. That took a lot. You know, you could say it internally or you could say it outwardly. I just think that when we don't do that, just like you, you know, with anything else that you reward or punish, it will just cease to exist. And I think that some of the breakthroughs I'm seeing with my clients specifically is they become more assertive. They become more confident in their identity and they don't fall into the trap of people pleasing. They no longer care about being the nice guy or the nice woman. You know, they kind of develop their own identity and they go off of what feels right to them, not what they were taught by tradition or by culture or by how genders are supposed to be. They just go off of, this feels good, so that's what I'm gonna do. Um, and those are some of the, the, the signs to me that this person is definitely uh, progressing forward. Um, I wanted to shift gears slightly, but you did mention, you know, when my daughter does something, you know, I praise her and, you know, I, I've done my own personal work, especially, uh, when it comes to the quote unquote inner child work, which is an important, uh, thing that a lot of therapists focus on is that a lot of our wounds come from when we were young, the way we were treated, the way we were raised, the way we were indoctrinated and that those, um, patterns, behaviors, reward systems, carry through to our adult lives, whether we realize it or not, and that that can actually lead to a lot of issues in our lives. And I just wanted to, to, to kind of pick your brain about the importance of understanding conditioning and what role that plays in our behaviors and um, what we can do to adjust. And I don't want to say correct, because I think that that's a bad term to utilize, but to adjust our behaviors if those behaviors aren't quote unquote serving us. Yes, I think that conditioning is very important, not just with parenting, but also in relationships, um, as well as internal work, our relationship with ourselves, right? The idea of when we reward something, it continues. When we punish something, usually it 
ceases to exist, right? So if you reward the tantrums and you give in to the tantrums, now they'll continue. If you ignore them after a while, they'll cease to exist. It's the same in relationships. I often get a lot of couples where they don't even say thank you for doing the dishes. You know, they, there's a sense of entitlement that sets in after some years of marriage where people just take things for granted. Or even with your daughter, you know, the idea of I want her to, which I often get parents because they've had their own traumatic experience in childhood, they want to indulge their child with love and be very much present to their child. But that could be very dangerous sometimes too, because when you overindulge, now it loses its power. Rewards are not rewarding anymore because it's expected, right? So you have to, you know, when they've done psychological studies with animals, the the long-term behavioral consistency happens when there's intermittent rewarding when you do it sometimes but not all the time so the you could do no wrong daughter you're perfect you know although we all want to do that with the person we love it it might cause for issues in her adult relationships or in work relationships later on in life because if they're already quote unquote perfect why would they listen to authority? Why would they follow orders or be disciplined, right? So it's that half and half why, you know, you want to reward, but you also want to make sure that you educate a person or your child on when they're not doing something and then telling them why not to do it. That's a really good point. And one that, I mean, I think that I can definitely take notes on that because I, I feel like we love, you know, I love my child so much. I give her so much support and help but I have, as of late, realized that, like, I don't want to raise an asshole. So we have to kind of put some <laughs> put some barriers down. And the one thing I've noticed recently, and this is just my own personal story, but, like, when we threaten to take things away from her, she does what, what we ask her to do. And I was like, oh, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. That we say, like, hey, we're not going to, you know, read you books before you go to bed. And she's like, no, no, I want that. And she'll do what we ask her. And so she actually has a, a fear of consequence, which sounds like a very ominous thing, but I think is actually a really healthy thing for children to understand that their behaviors lead to consequences, yep, absolutely. Um, which I think that is something maybe got lost or gets lost in parenting. Well, uh, because it's good intentions. Like you said, like, yeah. you know, like there's this saying I always tell, especially to parents who are crazy about their children as they should be. You know, I said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like you could have good intentions, but if it ends up in hell, what's the point, right? So you want to really like think that you could shelter your daughter with all the love and emotional attentiveness. But you know, once she starts working or her girlfriends or whatever relationships she get into, they're not all going to be as loving and caring and, and rewarding as you are. Right. And so now your daughter is going to have a harder time feeling the sense of belonging. So if you truly do love her, you kind of do want to prepare her for the balance that the world will, will bring and kind of teach her and prepare her so that she doesn't fall on her face you know, because you've been this soft, cushiony pillow her whole childhood, you know. So I think balance is key with that. Yeah, it's just hard to, it's hard to figure out with a young child when it's over the top or when it's meant to happen. When I feel like a, I'm like primed to be a great parent when they're like a young teenager. I'll be able to <laughs> really reason with them and, and show them the error in their ways. But I have a feeling maybe that notion is probably 
I'll probably be just as lost. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a work in progress. Yeah, it is. And it's a learning, it's a learning. You're educating her and she's educating you, you know, it's a two-way street. I mean, it's been the most transformative, uh, experience of my life is having a child. I knew that it would be an incredible experience, but it is so educational and it also lets you as an individual, uh, and I think anyone who has children who cares about them, um, it makes you look at your own childhood and your, the own, th- your own, the things that, that you were taught or the way that you were conditioned and go, that didn't work out for me. I'm not going to do that. Or this was a good thing that has served me well. Maybe I need to implement more of this in my mm-hmm. child rearing, you know, skills. I wanted to, to talk about this idea. We, we chatted briefly in our sort of pre interview, but this idea that people that obviously people that work in the therapy space or the psychology space, are quote unquote awake and that their, their lives are, are, uh, intertwined with this idea of diving inward and understanding who you are as an individual, who we are as individuals. But I've also realized in my own personal work that once you sort of go in and do the very difficult work, you kind of can't go back to sleep, so to speak. Like you, you are now for lack of a better term stuck in this work. And it's very rewarding work in that you can see and feel the changes that occur in your life. And for other people that I've seen doing therapy, I can see those changes in their lives too. And that's obviously really great to see. But how do you, how do you advertise it by saying to people, look, you're going to, if you go long enough, you're going to start to wake up and you're going to realize things about yourself that you never even could begin to understand. And that's going to be a painful and nonlinear process where you're going to have a lot of wins and you're going to regress and you're going to, it's going to be difficult when on the other side, it's, you know, ignorance is bliss and being asleep feels nice. Right. So, you know, I've, I often struggle with how do I advertise this to people? You know, how do I tell people like, Hey, you want to go, really deep inside and explore your own personal wounds and the things you've done that you're not proud of. And because once you wake up, you can't go back to sleep type of thing. Yes. So, so how do you reckon that with, with the people that you work with, who you've been working with a long time, who are making those big strides, you know, how do you, how do you um, help them through that process when things get really difficult, even though they've made great progress? So what, as most therapists, what we do is when we give our informed consent, we let people know about the benefits and drawbacks, right? Like what are the risks and what are the benefits of therapy? The benefits are, you know, your relationship could be mended. Uh, You could evolve into a better self. You could heal from your childhood traumas. You could organize your mental space. You could have better stress management. There's a lot of pros and benefits to, to therapy, but we also inform them because it's, you know, we're not in the business of tricking people and selling them. We're not salespeople, right? So we're, we're also telling them that, Hey, your relationship might end. It might get worse before it get, gets better. I'm not in the business of keeping marriages together no matter what. If it's a toxic relationship, I'll let you know that it's toxic. And I'll let you two understand why it's toxic and I'll enlighten you on it or educate you on it. But I'm not going to hold you together no matter what, even if that's your goal, right? So to kind of inform people about the journey and the way that I, if I had to package it as a give it a shot is to see it as why not watch a movie about your own life? 
You're not going to like some of the scenes. You're not going to like some of the traumas. But why not? You know, we spend so much time looking at fictitious stories and, and things, fictional characters that are not even real. Why not look at your own story? Why can't we just watch the movie of your life? And although you might not like some of the scenes and you're going to want to turn it off, I could promise you that by watching the movie of your life, we could create a better ending, right? You at least will have some sort of control over the ending versus if you don't watch the movie. If you don't watch your movie, then you're always in the passenger seat or even in the back seat. So I think that at least know where you're heading because therapy really just turns on all the lights. And then you can make the decision what you want to do with the mess that you see now that the lights are on. Nobody's forcing you to, to handle it any particular way. But I do think that once we wake up, it is very hard to go back to sleep. And it's a very alienating act. When I teach um, my intro to counseling class, that's one of the first things I tell my students. I said, for those of you who want to become therapists and counselors, just know that it's going to be alienating. You're going to lose some friends, not because of bad terms, but because you're going to grow out of the circle. You're going to grow out of family members. You're not going to have the same mindset anymore. You're not going to want to talk about Louboutins and, 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 and the newest high heels and designer purses, you're going to want to talk about somebody's shadows and their deeper issues and their trauma and their childhood stuff. You're going to want to go deep and not everybody's going to want to be your friend when you always want to have deep conversations. So I kind of prepare people that, Hey, it's, you're going to go through changes, but while you're going through the changes, you will evolve like the butterfly out of the cocoon into having more beautiful colors and being wiser and understanding the world. And there are definitely people who purposely regress back. They'll start using again, they'll seek out the old friends, they'll seek out the toxic relationships again, because enlightenment is not, not, not everybody's ready for it, you know? And, and if they're not ready for it yet, that's okay. One day they will be. Beautifully said, thank you. <laughs> Something that you mentioned that I wanted to discuss, you mentioned in your response is the idea of, of losing friends or I don't want to use the term losing friends, but, but pe you know, people are no longer as large a part of your life anymore because you've changed or cer their circumstances changed. And I think that that is a way to another way of saying like setting a boundary or setting a soft boundary of this person's just not necessarily aligned with my own journey or my own path. It's neither negative or positive. And that's been something really difficult for me because I have a lot of really long, lifelong friendships that I still have. And, and, um, and I, still, I still love those people and care about them deeply. But the relationships has changed significantly. And they've noticed the change. And I've noticed the change, obviously. And it's almost been like I've had to, for lack of a better term, condition those people to understand like, hey, we're still going to be friends, but the relationship's going to be different. Um, and some people are just not, they just don't understand it. And I, and I don't blame them because if things are one way in a relationship for a really long time, and then all of a sudden over the course of a couple of weeks or a month, they're like, well, this person's not calling me as much. And when I talk to them, you know, they don't want to be on this text chain or they don't want to talk about this thing or that thing. And the other, and, and conversely, it's happened to me too, where there are people in my life that I've always thought like, I have a great relationship with this person. Then all of a sudden we just stop. Yeah you know, uh, interacting. 
And I, I wanted to, to touch on this a bit about this idea of setting boundaries or it's, it's okay to not see your family as much as weird as that may sound. And it's not something that most people want to hear, especially if you're, if you love your family, that potentially there's behaviors in the, in the nuclear family unit or extended family that are really bad for you or triggers. And, and in, in my life, I've, I've noticed that occasionally. And, uh, and I've definitely, my relationship have changed, my relationships have changed in that regard. And so I, I just want to talk a little bit more about like, like you said, not worrying too much about being the nice guy or the nice mm -hmm. guy or the nice person and really doing what's best for you. Because if you're not the best that you can be, you're not going to show up in the world the best way for everyone else around you. Exactly. Um, so, so maybe exploring and talking a little bit more about how to helpful, healthfully set a boundary. What, what are some, again, just some basic things of, of, of approaching it from a very respectful place and understanding that people may get angry at you over this stuff or be really upset at you. And I'll just, I'll just give a brief story and then I'll let you kind of answer, give you kind of some context. I, had a, I have a really close friend who didn't know that I had started doing this podcast and um, I didn't tell him because I didn't think that I had to tell him. It was my thing that I wanted to do. And when he found out I had it, he called me and he was like very kind of upset with me. And I was really puzzled. And his reasoning was that, you know, I didn't know that my friend had, had gone through this sort of experiential change in his life. And that bothered him to some extent. And I'm still a little confused as to why. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just my personality versus his personality. I don't think that's it's not negative or positive. But but I guess like that type of thing happened to me. And I was just kind of confused. Like, what do you mean? I, what do you, why does it matter what I'm doing? But for him, it was a big deal, mm -hmm. really important to him. And so those types of things can happen. And that's a minor thing. Sometimes it's really major. So I hope that that gives you some context. But maybe yeah, speak a absolutely. Little bit more about that. Absolutely. I think that, you know, whenever we evolve, we are going to shed some skin. And that means sometimes jobs that no longer serve us, friendships that no longer, conversations that no longer, thoughts, movies, interests, we're constantly changing. And I think everybody is constantly changing. Some people just do not acknowledge it. There's a difference. And so for some people, they like some consistency. So although I can't speak on behalf of your friend, in that scenario, for example, it could be that a person like that is going through a lot of changes through his or her life that having, being in the know about Ian's life was something that was consistent. That was the only consistent thing. And now hearing that that also isn't consistent could for some people be um, scary. So I think that the idea of people need us to be certain things in their lives because it serves a purpose or they need the relationship to appear a certain way because it's comforting, right? When there's changes happening in their lives, you may have been the constant or their perception of you may have been the constant or the kind of relationship they thought you two had was the constant. And so change is very uncomfortable, which is kind of what I've been saying the whole time. For a lot of people, it's uncomfortable because then you have to adapt. Then you have to make changes to yourself. And I think that not everybody has the resources, the time, the flexibility to make that change. If you have, you know, five children you know, there's very little time for you to do self-exploration and evolve past your old ways. So I think that when, you know, a lot of people and I think collectivism and individualism play a big part in this, too, that a lot of times people, although they want to evolve past the boundaries within their families, 
because of their collectivistic culture, they kind of are forced to be railed back into, no, you have to do what family says and you have to be a part of us no matter how dysfunctional we are. And you will deal with some kind of emotional, verbal or whatever abuse. You know, emotional abuse is being ignored too. That's emotional abuse. Uh, or being verbally abused and attacked, being called names, um, being punished in some shape or form for you changing. Because if you change, Ian, and I'm a family member of yours, it will require me to change. I need you to hold that same role that we grew up in. Otherwise, I'm going to have to change too, and I'm not ready for that. So I think that a lot of times when we move our car forward, it forces other people to have to move forward also. So it's not just about set boundaries for yourself, but set boundaries so that other people in the world could see how it should be done for their own benefit. You know, it's not just a selfish thing. It's a show people that it's okay and healthy to say, I don't have to attend every party. I don't have to always do this or never do this. I could, I could change it up tomorrow. I could be someone different. I don't have to be funny or charming or whatever Ian is supposed to be. I could just be whatever Ian chooses to be tomorrow. Um, and I think it's a tough process. It's not easy. It's not easy when your friends start getting mad or you feel like you're getting ignored or left out. And But it's part of it. You know, it's, a, it's the cost for evolving. Yeah, and I also wonder, based on what we talked about earlier in the conversation, if there's a threat to identity, too, because you you have a, a specific idea of who you are in relation to this person, and that's a piece of your own identity. And so that's been forced to change through no reason of your own, and I guess that could be a very uncomfortable uh, thing to experience. And I know, personally, I've had that happen to me, so I think that there's it's probably tied into that. The identity thing is so interesting because it, it is it's so much of the issues, it's so much of the huge problems we have in our country and in the world is it's tied into, you know, our identity and, and, and who, who, we, uh, who we think we are. I want to ask you sort of a metaphysical question, and maybe you can, you can summon your inner Alan Watts to, uh, <laughs> to answer this, because I'm a huge fan of him as well. I think he's a wonderful, wonderful person. I love listening to his talks on, on YouTube. As so meandering and, and fun, yeah, as meandering and amazing as they are, it yes. takes you to a million places. No one knows who Alan is. Uh, go look up his writings and his YouTube talks. He's great. Do you think that the natural, the con- natural condition of human beings is that we're kind of set up to fail and that we have to learn how to succeed? Or do you feel that our natural state is one of freedom and success and that the natural world is trying to peel that away from us. I think that naturally we are set up to succeed. I think that the world creates limitations and then we start creating it for ourselves. I think that the fact that, you know, which is, I I am spiritual, not necessarily religious, but I do think that that is the humor of our human existence is that our brain isn't fully developed until 25. So a lot happens from zero to yeah, 25. Yeah, what a joke that is, Exactly. Right? So, you know, a lot happens from zero. So good luck, Ian, zero to 25 with your daughter. Um, you know, it's, it, there's this idea of, you know, so much gets thrown into that brain that is still hardening um, into what they're going to become. And so much could go wrong. 
you know, and I think that there's a lot of limitations we always put on people with all the right intentions. Again, you know, good intentions, but could still lead to hell. So the be careful, don't do that. Oh, you should be afraid of this. You know, that fear mongering that we're constantly faced with that creates limitations. And so by the time the brain is fully developed at 25 and having heard about how to be careful, how to be afraid, what to be afraid of, now we go, no, limitations are necessary. I like it. I like to be comforted in four walls, you know, nice cozy blanket. I like to feel limited to a certain degree. I think true freedom is very scary to people. And I think that we say we want it. We say we want to be free. But if you notice every single person in your life has created some sort of guardrails to keep them safe, to keep them limited to a certain degree, because the unknown, like I said, was scary. It's very scary to go that sky's the limit. We throw that out there all the time. But nobody really wants to see, you know, how limitless it actually is. We only want to go as far as we think we could bear. And then we go back. So I think that it is placed upon us to be limiting. I think that we are set up to, to achieve, to achieve and to succeed. If you look at the animal kingdom, they take far more risks than we do. They live in a far scarier world than we do. Um, and I think it's the way that we're parented, the way that we have our media feeding us things and that the way that we're educated, that teaches us more about the issues and the problems in the world more so than the opportunities and possibilities of the world. Wow. I don't know how we're going to top that. That's, that's, <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, I love, love your answer. It's, uh, I'll just put this to you and there's no, no, um, we, the, you know, no pressure. Is there anything that you'd wanted to discuss right now that, that we haven't talked about or any, any issues that are near and dear to your heart as a therapist and the work you do that you that you you'd like to discuss more i i think that we've covered a lot of the things i'm passionate about i think the main thing is just to to be an advocate for mental health to just really Absolutely. break the stigma as much as i can whenever i get the opportunity to to just let people explore it you know do do that for yourself that one treat of you don't have to come to me but just seek out a therapist even if it's for free even if it's your priest, even if it's, you know, somebody that you could talk to who is just there to listen to you. I think that we don't have that enough. I think people's attention spans are steadily decreasing and nobody really listens anymore. Everybody is trying to teach. Nobody's trying to learn. So, so find someone who will just listen to you, a therapist, a coach, someone who will help you sort out what you're going through. I think that's the, the one thing I just want to really stress to kind of add to all the wonderful content you already talked about. Thanks. And I second that. And I will make sure that at least some people go and see you. So you don't have to be too <laughs> humble about that. Um, uh, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. I love that we got to talk about Alan Watts. Um, oh my God. Fan. I could talk about Alan Watts for days. I am. We'll I, do that. That'll be you nice talk about, you episode. talk about meditation that is my meditation because, you know, most people think meditation is just this eyes closed and most people with anxiety can't do that. They're like, I cannot quiet that mental chatter. And so Alan Watts, finding someone who has a calming voice, guided meditation, you know, whatever it is for you, it could be listening to the birds, whatever just calms you down. Let that be your meditation. Alan Watts is definitely my meditation. Excellent. I love it. Thank you again. Of this course. is wonderful. Appreciate Thank you. it. And um, you're great. 
Thank you. I'll see you soon, <laughs> Ian. That was an awesome conversation. I thank Mercedes so much for her time. She gave us so much valuable insight. It was an honor to speak with her. If you're interested in learning more about Mercedes Kaufman, you can find her on Instagram at Mercedes Kaufman Therapy. She posts really helpful short chats, giving you tips and insights into mental health and overall well-being. Mercedes is a superstar, and I feel that you'll be hearing and seeing much more from her in the future. I urge you to be patient with yourself and others, calm things down a bit, listen more, and talk less without judgment or ridicule. And that includes of yourself, which I need to work on. We all do. If you've been thinking about doing therapy or working a bit on yourself for whatever reason, I encourage you to take the leap and try it. It is worth it. Take it in and try to understand all these things as best you can. I am trying desperately to do this, sometimes successful, sometimes not. It's hard, but it is worth it. Please join me in this endeavor. I will speak to you soon. This just is. <laughs>